The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Seeds of Wellbeing series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the University of Hawaii College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources, or funders, and any affiliated organizations involved in this project. Welcome to a Seeds of Wellbeing Voices from the Field podcast featuring voices of Hawaii agriculture producers for Hawaii agriculture producers. These podcasts are made possible by a grant from the University of Hawaii College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources, also known as CTAR, and the Seeds of Wellbeing, or SO project, and is supported by a grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, National Institute of Food and Agriculture, and the Hawaii Department of Agriculture. The intention of these podcast series is to create a safe space for respectful and inclusive dialogue with people from across a broad and diverse spectrum involved in growing and making accessible the food we share together. A diversity of voices, perspectives, and experiences can serve to deepen mutual understanding, to spark creative problem solving, and provide insight into the complexities of our agricultural system. If you, or listeners, have experiences with Hawaii agriculture ecosystem, from indigenous methods, permaculture, smallholder farmers, to large, including multinational agricultural industrial companies, and everywhere in between, and you would like to share your story, please contact us. We welcome your voices and perspectives. In this episode, we speak with Peleke Flores, Field Operations and Cultural Resource Manager for Malama Hulia, a nonprofit on Kauai dedicated toward restoring the wetland ecosystem along the Hulia River and the Ele Koko Fish Pond. The nonprofit mission is to advocate, educate, and head community efforts to reestablish the functional watershed and create an environmental stewardship program honoring Hawaiian values. Aloha, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Seeds of Wellbeing podcast. Today, I am honored to introduce you and have a talk story with Peleke Flores. He is the part of Malama, oh, I don't know if you're director or yes, of Malama. Uh, operations, operations manager. Operation managers of Malama Huleia. Um, Paleke is a local, he's responsible for a local AEA fish pond. Um, he's also a Kalo farmer and very much um, hoping to revive and um, committed to the Hawaiian food system, the sustainability of Hawaiian food system. So welcome Paleke and thank you for um, allowing us to interview you and do a little talk story with you about um, what we're focusing on on this project is to understand um, your well-being and what contributes to well-being or maybe a challenge to one's well-being. So can you share with us a little bit about um, how is it being a local Kalo farmer on Kauai? You are on Kauai. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes. My, my reception goes up and down over here. But yeah, for me, I guess it's kind of different from the traditional farmers uh, or more modern farmers, I guess. A lot of my time more spent restoring systems 
to get up and running again. Um, whether it be Lo'i Kalo or Loko'i'a and Lo'i Pa'akai. Uh, so fish ponds, tarot patches, or salt beds. Um, yeah, and more of it is we haven't, I never reached the point within the Loko'i'a realm to become full commercialized yet because of the size of the pond and the amount of restoration we had to do, of removing mangrove, um, restoring rock walls, and bringing back waters to um, the right quantity for water quality and dealing with dredging. And you know, like, so it's a lot slower progress. Only been doing it for the past maybe 13 years within the local EO realm. 13 years. That's that's quite a long time. And then with Loi Kalo, almost 20 now. Oh. Um, and then, yeah, or over 20, sorry, for Kalo and, and Loi, Loi Pakai. But, yeah. Yeah, that, that's wonderful. Can you share a bit about, like, how does that contribute to your well-being? Um, for me, it was definitely more of a na'au driven kind of thing um it definitely doesn't pay well <laughs> or we're, we're, we're content but it's more the restoration mm -hmm. um mentally physically and spiritually for ourselves and our aina and water systems and the the hana that our kupuna did you know six eight hundred years ago to help set up most of these systems we're still trying to hold on to. So what are some yeah. of the challenges for you to be able to do this? Definitely funding is number one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> A lot of the places was access to those places. Um, currently where I'm at now, uh, we just acquired the fish pond. So that was that is totally new. We're less about six months in, seven months in. So it's super brand new for us. But in the beginning, it's definitely permits mm. that stop us from doing such a thing because it's around the water. Um, with DOH and Army Corps and all those kind of stuff. And then funding after that to retain people committed to keep working it so that it can be restored. As a very high high rely highly on community volunteering too mm. um, in order to help get the Jata plus grants and um, and wh why is it so hard to to keep to recruit and, and retain um, uh, support staff uh, grants don't cover staffing usually <laughs> for nonprofits mm -hmm. um, so we have to be more uh, wordsmithy about how we're using the money in order to get the job done and this kind of work is it's hard to get the pay to the to the height of what the work is done like chainsawing and working in the mud by hand and or if you're contracting and dealing with all the permits and regulations from there so you gotta love it more than <laughs> do for now but for me the bigger picture at the end of the tunnel is way more worth it 
to know that this system can live again for the next 800 years mm. and feed our kids, kids, kids. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So aside from funding then, uh, how, how, what sort of resources, um, support would be needed for you to sustain yourself um, financially as well as um, spiritually, um, livelihood-wise? We've been sustaining ourselves now. I guess things, the roadblocks have been just the whole political realm of water, water usage. Like all of our Aina based systems or every farm system need water, but these more ancient systems that's been running for hundreds of years mm-hmm. have been water been taken from it. So now it's not producing as well as it should. Education, not much people know about, you know, the fish pond renaissance and like the regrowing of that and how much it affects the environment or the ahupua'a system, how it keeps, how it's a bioindicator of a healthy ahupua'a system for those who have fish ponds within their ahupua'a. Um, yeah, and then pretty much funding because to the amount of work it takes to do this, like any farming stuff, you're working a full-time job and then trying to do this mm. on the side. It's the weeds will beat you a lot Are you doing, than, Is this a full-time job for you or is it on the side? Yeah. Okay. This is a full-time job. Okay. Um, hired under the nonprofit. So for grant run, it's like any construction business. <laughs> Once mm. that business done, we got to um, pick up the ball too. Well, our hope is to get it functioning again. Once the fish pond gets functioning, then there's a resource that can actually turn around and start being, find that cap of how much economic value we can get out of this without overbalancing this, um, or is that messing up the balance of the system. And yeah. Yeah, I imagine it would be very challenging to constantly try to run after funds because uh, how sustainable it is if you're, because uh, right now you've got funds, but they're limited because it's contract yeah. or grant based, and then you're chasing after another one. So what what could be very helpful to make sure that you're sustainable and not have to always have that worrying that oh no, you know, how am I going to continue? Once we get the pond to the to its restored state, um, it's a 39 acre fish pond. So to restore the wall. We've got 2,700 foot of wall to restore. We've got about 16 acres of dredging to do for the pond. And then oh, wow. we, we just removed 26 acres of mangrove um, in the past two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we got to make sure all the hydrology, the spring, the spring waters that's been running through here, are all the, the Awa system are all cleared up and feeding into the pond mm. um, consistently. And then the bigger mess up is that where our pond is located, it's a little inland, but right outside where it looks like the river mount, that's where the harbor is and the break walls. So this fish pond is not getting the amount of salt water, at least circulation in that it did before all that Western contact started to mold the, the Bay area. So once we get the other phases, Done. We just have to see where the natural calibration, where, where the fish pond naturally yeah. calibrates itself again. And then we'll work from there to amplify the resources that comes out of it. 
Oh, I see. You did mention like the access to water and it's not only access to water, but a balance of, of course, you need to have the right balance of the type of water, right? But you're saying that yeah, we, we, we rely highly on brackish water, the right brackish water for the natural phytoplankton, zooplankton blooms. Mm -hmm. And that's our base course of the, the filter feeders, the baby fish being fed. We don't feed the fish pond or we don't feed the fish in the fish pond. We're working with a natural system that makes its own food. So mm. keeping that water balanced so that the natural blooms happen will help feed all the baby fish. But it's more like uh, an incubator, um, rebalancing all that system within that realm. And the baby fish will be attracted to this place, whether we like it or not. But we got to get that water balance again. Mm. Um, and then having the just the right amount of flow, but also the next level is having the limu field start growing again. So the limu within the ponds with the right balance in depth um, and sunlight, then the, the limu will start growing. That's the second tier of the food chain that would feed those filter feeders as they, you know, their appetites move into heartier mm. foods. We get those two balanced, then the fish pond will start giving itself so. What kind of resources we could get out from the fish, the crab, oysters, clams, limo. We have oysters too. In we can grow oysters. Not not right now. Um, mm -hmm. It's too silty. Uh, so we got to get mangrove did a big damage to this place. Mm -hmm. And uh, the pond is like a foot shallow. So we got to get, once we get to our dredging phase, our sediment removal, that is our biggest bump mm -hmm. challenge right now is the hardest uh, permit to get through. Even though we have a streamlined permit for the four fish ponds, but it's it's moving along. Oh, so so I've heard finances is a big one in terms of a challenge, permitting, legislative barriers. What, can you describe a little bit more about the legislative barriers or policy that makes it particularly challenging for, for you or any other farmers and Fish pond restorers. Uh, I guess with more other regulations, there, there, there is a fish pond streamline process that has been developed within the past, what is that? I don't know how much years now, 10 years? Or, but it's slowly being implemented before fish ponds would take, hey, you know, a fish pond that used to work, it was like 20 years for some permits to pass through because of xyz and before they used to put fish ponds under the same permitting process as bridges and break walls and you know piers when these structures was there way long before and all we got to do is fix it and most of the fixing is all by hand and they're putting all these bmps on us or whatever in order to keep the stuff like i, I see the good in it but this supposed to be grandfathered in, especially if we're doing it by hand. So mm -hmm. we shouldn't have to find the trail and ask permission to restore a 800 year old structure just because America's, you know, the new lawmaker now. I see where it has to go for like new West, like new modern dating, like bridges and all those other stuff. But we're talking about an ancient structure. We should have the right to just go and build, rebuild it so that we can start feeding again, bringing those ice boxes back in.
And you're also a collar farmer, you say? Yes. I have some experience in that realm too. Yeah. Yeah, and and I know you mentioned the water access is a is a potential stressor, or not potential. It is a stressor, right? Yes. So, can you describe a little bit about that for our audience? Is the water is a stressor? The access to water, right? Because you mentioned, yes. I guess we're here at the fish pond. We're lucky. Um, because we have springs here, so we are currently just trying to figure out those springs and see what the capacity they can push in order for us to divert into lobbies that we are rest- restoring. Um, but yeah, uh, for the local uh, access to waters or the river systems that don't have enough water mm-hmm. because of diversions, at least on Kauai, a lot of it is going to ag or hotels, mm-hmm. which drops the water within the river to keep feeding within the fish pond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what would side. you, oh, sorry to interrupt. Okay. What would you recommend as a solution when you've got these competing demands then for, to support the, the farmers like and the fish pond restore like you and then like you say the other ags and hotel industry sorry can you can you ask that question again oh sure so do you have any ideas in terms of a solution to navigate through these competing demands where one is to support um, the efforts like you and the other is like oh you know the hotel industry or the big ag wants water as well when you've got resources that are competing with one another in terms of what everybody needs, what would you, is there a solution that you can offer or you would recommend? It's going in all kinds of rooms for me. Like, politically, can go all the way back to is, you know, like, Is there really a treaty of annexation? Is America doing what they're supposed to do? Or we go right to the point and solve it there, or we're gonna deal with what we have now and slowly keep chipping at that block with our rights. And um, while in the meantime, for me, I just keep doing what I do. I focus on local ER right now and try get it as running good as we can, so it can prove that. Our kupuna ike is like was the best right now for this environment. Um, it's gonna clash with the plantation era or management systems, but it should be shut down, I believe, because it's not a good management system. Because now that they're holding on to that water, they're diverting it to these farms or new farmers to try and grow things in an area that didn't need that water in the first place mm. um, over here in Mana, we're just trying to deal with the KIUC the Kauai's utility company diverting water for 65 more years to the Mana Plains from Waimea um, everybody starts like and that system is played off of the sugarcane system which is always been a junk system anyways because now you're pulling water from an ahupa that was using it 
to the kind, but then you kill off those farmers and then you're continuing that water just so you can say you're growing other farmers in another area. But if people look past the sugarcane era and then even past the Iliahi trade era, the sandalwood trade era, or the cattle and the Iliahi trade, the Iliahi trade now is within the kingdom time. Um, that area within Mana was fish ponds. The biggest fish ponds uh, in all Hawaii that was growing. It was, it was well known as called the float. I don't know if you heard it before, the floating lotus of Mana. Have you heard that before? No, could you please explain that? So these ponds were brackish water ponds that um, Kupuna built rafts. Well, it's too deep to just plant the kalo and it was brackish water. So they'll build rafts to put mulch on it and then would plant the kalo on the raft. So the rafts would be floating while the kalo was growing on it. But in their brackish water level layer, um, the fresh water would pretty much rise to the top, right? So the, the floating mat the floating mats would suck up, the kalo would suck up the freshwater land from the top and you're pretty much growing kalo, but still growing brackish water, food below, fish and oh. whatever. So amplifying resources within one space to make more food. But yeah. as true time, um, when those systems was running, there's a lot of springs running through there. On the top of the mountains, it was way more forested, re-energizing those springs, those aquifers do pop up on those flats along with the salt water coming in to make that brackish water. But during the sandalwood trade, then they depleted that forest on top. So that was the start of those those recharges from you know declining. Mm-hmm. And then cattle came in and then sugar cane. So then on that flats they made ditches to divert the water out so that they could start growing sugarcane on those flats because um, mm-hmm. it was too brackish and then they cap all the springs so now they're hoping to continue that type of farming by diverting by continuing diverting water from you know two ahu, three ahu miles away so that that can still keep happening so that is just a jump system in itself if we had to revert back time all the way to the <laughs> reforesting the top and building up a generational restoration that can last longer naturally versus yeah. forcing water sideways. I believe that's that's the solution, but politics or grants, if it's not, can't be attained within the four or eight year term, then no sense support it. But we start now by our grandkids, we should be able to see a big shift of land going back to the time of, whatever Captain Cook wrote about. But we still can mix modern day stuffs behind, but just understanding the natural system that our kupuna already child and error and maxed out to the most of its ability using whatever is in this space. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's making sense, but yeah. Yes, uh, yes. You, you, I mean, you're outlining, uh, you're, you're sharing with us the whole historical context and the challenges that you going to, you're navigating through. So, do you have young folks or to, because you said education is part of this and um, part of what you're doing is also an educational piece. So what efforts are you doing along that line? I'm, I'm sure you're providing an experiential place-based sort of experience for the young farmers or the young fish pond restorers. 
we, we connect with our community. Um, we get school groups coming down every time just to learn. Uh, I connect with teachers, any teacher, as long as like I try to customize to their curriculum. Um, at least with, within COVID, it was good because we got to partner up with Kamehameha schools to form a virtual curriculum. And within the year, we developed a six, un six units curriculum that covered like your basic lavena or how you come into a place, any place, like whether the ocean, the mountain, how you come into a place knowing how you ask permission. It's those basics so that a lot of us are forgetting just walking to anywhere you want to go. Mm. Um, how you treat a place before, during, and after. Mm. And then it goes into history of this area and talks about the, the birds, the plants, or the fish, the plants, the birds, and then ultimately at the end, the people and how we intertwine all of that together. Uh, restoring fish ponds and wet or other wetlands kind of hard because when you start working with agencies, they, they kind of, the model is like always split. Like if you're a bird sanctuary, it's only the birds. Mm -hmm. The people, like keep the people out of it and then now it's just for the birds. But through our kupuna mindset, our wet, our systems is the one that help amplify the birds in that mm -hmm. space. Amplify the fish, amplify the food. And then the bioindicator of that healthy system was the abundance of the birds that come. Mm. A lot of people is still living with it. So getting, trying to navigate that realm with the agencies and still using, like, trying to show them that lo'ikalo and native birds and people got to be together. Fish mm -hmm. ponds, fish, native birds, water, all of that got to be together. People help mm -hmm. keep that balance build that relationship with the animals and the plants even closer. Mm -hmm. um, that's how all our stories are formed, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, Peleke, um, I see you as being very soft and gentle, although you're big and muscular, right? <laughs> so uh, probably folks will want to know, how, how do you cope with all these challenges to, to do what you need to do? Because it's your kuleana in part. Um, and your livelihood, just I can just feel your peacefulness, even though from what you're sharing, there are a lot of contextual factors that are outside your control, and you you just continue to do this. So I'm wondering where where do you get that strength and that coping ability, or what is your coping ability? It's a lot. Um, we have our ahu was the first one, um, at least for this space, and just through learning in different experiences when you um going to establish an ahu here to manifest our intentions and our purpose and why we're here um for this space not just for the us for everything and every yes spirit or one that has come and gone and still roaming are still here okay so like having a respect for them and knowing that I don't know how. Um, there's a whole process that <laughs> goes through it. We do we're building the ahu here. We go through our own protocols of centering our pico, our tree pico, and understanding why we're here, what we're doing, and 
the fights that has happened way before us and the ones that failed and why they failed. So try not to copy that again. And usually for a lot of our people, the ones that make it fail is the actual getting hot too fast and not too having fast? that. Uh, what, can you elaborate on that? What is it that's um, so fast? Getting mad too fast mm. and losing the whole momentum because the, the, the fuses are super short which is a generational trauma kind of stuff. Um, and knowing and seeing that there was good movements out there, but after going through all these mm-hmm. loopholes and whatever, it's just too much to attain. And then all that progress gets put down once you lose your crap, <laughs> or lose your, what you call, <laughs> your focus. Mm-hmm. So I learned how to bite my tongue a lot and just get the point across by showing more than talking, I guess. <laughs> um, but then keeping our, I guess I get dive deeper with this. So like with our ahu, we go through a process of cleansing the land. Um, and you gotta, we, we kanu ia, we bury fish, like four different fish for this section. Whatever you do in a hale or a site, or for us was the ahu. Um, so our first fish is the ahole hole. And the ahole hole is playing off the word hole to scrape away, to clean all the, the bad spiritually that has happened to this space. Um, yeah, you know, that we didn't do, uh, that was done before us. Um, the second fish is the kala, the kala fish, kala fish play off of the mihi, right, to ask for forgiveness for all the bad that has been done out of that, you know, that it, we might be doing now without us knowing anything or any bad that might be done in the future out of our control, like a kalamai, like setting that, asking forgive, for forgiveness right now. Um, then the next ER is the kumu. Kumu is the plane of the kumu, like that foundation or the, um, what is that called? The kumuhana, like what is our purpose here now? So like um, for us, our purpose is to restore this fish pond for me to keep the integrity of the fish pond, fish pond, a functioning fish pond. Um, there are a lot of distractions nowadays and different ideas that no, we gotta rely, stick to the main, of this pond and then from there will grow um, and then the last one is the avail veil to play off with the ah the tuho ah to enlighten to enlighten this space enlighten this ahu to attract the good to help us amplify our intentions to restore and bring back life to this aina after all its struggles so, and yeah it's it gets into bumpy roads gets dramas here and there but to refocus the people, picos, and have that foresight that this is not just for our time. It's back for the literally doing it for the next eight hundred years. Every step we do have a purpose and function for it, so it can last longer. That's such a beautiful, yeah. beautiful practice uh, with the fish, with the four fish here, like you're saying. It's like the metaphor becomes a fish for the practice internally as a way to restore oneself and to maintain that direction then. So you don't lose your hot, 
a cool mind. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there's there's time, but yeah, it's not worth it, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's like keeping that cup of aloha. <laughs> yeah. But, well, just speaking with you makes me so calm. <laughs> and like just so steady. It's like this must be a product of 20 years or what you know more than 20 years i'm sure because you it's probably in your dna of this sort of intention and practice that's just a part of you and so when you're when you're dealing with somebody who's like have a very strong opinion that's different from you how do you respond i don't know i let the place respond because there's not i don't I try to keep my personal wants and needs out of what we need to do Mm -hmm. Um, or like my personal wants out of what we need to do for the place. So I try to explain everything for the integrity of the place. And if they can break that, then I might've missed something or, you know, it'll be really obvious, but usually when people come here and I explain things and it just, I haven't had anybody, be fully against it or something like maybe before the mangrove was an issue removing the mangrove um because other places in the world mangrove is trying to be saved or it's illegal to remove but in hawaii it's proven that it's not good for our environment it's closing closing up our waterways building land inside fish ponds Um, it just doesn't act the way it does where it's native so so I'm wondering, was, like, as part of the education, can you bring those in the, you know, in the tourist industry or the others to really come to your place to have a different experience versus maybe they don't realize what they're doing because they haven't experienced the health benefits of being in such a restore place to restore themselves. For the tourists? Or whatever, the, the folks who are, I wouldn't say against, but like they're sort of um, hindering the challenges in your ability to do what you need to do because they've got other competing demands. Yeah, so like that 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 mangrove, um, what is that called? Scenario, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, that that happened on Oahu when I was a hey, uh, uh, was the outdoor circle actually tried to gang us on removing the the mangrove. They're like, oh, these guys are removing the, the native plants and messing up the native habitat, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh. At that time, if you Googled mangrove, yeah, all of that information would pop up. Mm-hmm. But to where it's from, not much information was done focused on Hawaii's environment and how mangrove affected that, mm-hmm. especially our, our food systems. So a girl did her master's thesis, Megzi, I forgot her last name, mm-hmm. on mangrove and its effects in Hawaii from the microscopic level up and pretty much helped us prove that we're doing the right thing. And then when like the people came out and apologized after they didn't know. They just jumped on it, just saw trees drop in. Mm. They didn't know what's happening. It just went. But after time, when they, they come and they, that's why we do our community work days so that there is time to, for people to come and learn. And they're not just working and busting ass over here. We do a tour, we, we teach about what we're doing, why we're doing it. Then we do some work and we do some planting. So you know that we're not just taking out, we're also putting in and when people get the bigger picture, like this structure is way more old, you know, like this six to 800 year old structure yeah. uh, due to carbon dating. So like guys already, that platform of, what is that called? Um, 
seniority is already set up. Like, okay, this is way before us. Okay, so then this system has been fine tuned and mm-hmm. you know amplified many of years way before this, and it's almost dying. So what we're doing is trying to resurrect it back up, and people hasn't haven't found an excuse to mm-hmm. say no. Um, maybe the agencies. Another one was the agencies within the birds, mm-hmm. and then the definition of a wetland versus a local ea. I was like, okay, yeah, we call it local eas or tar patch wetlands, but to our definition, we have a more defined focus and purpose for each of these wetlands. This is a local ea. This is a local ea. This is a like they all have different functions, mm-hmm. but in all they come back and round, they are connected to these, to everything else, from the mountain to the ocean. Yeah. And one part is off, it it reflects back. So we got to straighten and me back that land and water system to make it flow good again. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. So how do we make our human communications flow better again? Uh, we're chipping at it. It's definitely going to be a generational <laughs> movement with our land, water. I guess the rights too. Like we're working under a messed up system to begin with, like uh, illegal occupation of America. Like all those truths still got to come out. Those will help definitely big time fix flows in all different realms. Um, mm yearly by yearly is the next generation get more mm-hmm. educated on the truth then more and more the people will get stronger again mm-hmm. i don't see it happening like immediately but it's been happening within at least the last you know mm-hmm. since koholave <laughs> since koholave yeah. you know got taken back and okulea start going out and just that whole mm-hmm. everybody's slowly waking up Mauna Kea, mm-hmm. you know, the Haloa, the, what is that called? The patterning of Haloa, all those, these events that is happening is slowly waking up the people, Hawaiian and not Hawaiian, you know, like mm-hmm. people started to go and learn about mm-hmm. the political way. And I think that is like the main way that's going to help stop, or like help reflow a lot of stuff. But in the meantime, while that's getting chipped at, Everybody just got to work hard for everything else. Like guys are making sure water is running, you know, mm-hmm. flowing where it's supposed to, trying to get food sustainability, Hawaiian language, you know, like mm-hmm. the culture and just housing and you know, all of these, that's all right. you know, is effect to everybody just being able to live in here without being overrun by you know, rising prices of everything for the land and Mm-hmm. all of that can be fixed if you went straight to the top and mm. see if yeah to prove the illegal occupation is the one holding the bigger movement down because right now all the corporations are the one taking mm-hmm. making all the money off of everybody else well mm. we just slowly keep getting fizzled out so we just gotta keep making more babies <laughs> is that your solution <laughs> yeah. but, but the guy or that Kalakawa say that? Oulahui. <laughs> One of the Ali's said that, Kalamai. But yeah, we regrow the nation again. We 
we get enough numbers back mm-hmm. in the right conscious mind, we can't take back our nature because the power is in the people. We just got to get more people to believe it. So we get plenty of us still down in the sums when it can be down so long before we start sprouting again. Mm-hmm. So is um, thank you so much. Um, is there anything else you would like to share? Um, no, I guess oh. I'm down to they say that cocoa and answer whatever. Sorry, was it fully like farming, farming yet? But we're definitely getting into there. We're, we're striving to get to that point. It is a harder situation to get there. It's not like you can get an open piece of land, till it up, start throwing seeds in the ground. Uh, we're playing off of an older system that mm-hmm. has a way wider effect. Do you know much about fish ponds? I'm I'm about to. I'm going to tomorrow to the uh, oh. to the fish pond, the local area, and over in Pearl Harbor. Probably, yeah. Yes. So, yeah. So you get can give you a quick overview, and then you can you can uh, have reinforcement when you go down there. <laughs> but, yes. So yeah, I guess mm-hmm. so. Within our systems, this our fish pond system, there's six different styles of fish ponds, mm-hmm. or six different types of fish ponds. Um, and then within those six different types, you got three different water qualities. Like you got saltier fish ponds, oh. brackish water fish ponds, or freshwater ponds. And within there, within those six, they're either fish traps, fish pens, or fish ponds. Fish ponds are the more higher technology okay. of all of them because they make their own food and recruit their own fish. They have the ability. The other two is holding pens and trap so you got to kind of okay. have a little bit more function on them we're trying to one part when people ask the economy like economic question it's hard for us because it depends on each fish pond there, there are some templates out there that gauge how much food is coming out at one time per acre mm-hmm. pounds of fish per acre and some of the ponds on oahu but what people what we kind of calculate is the effects that it's doing to the wild fish population and the wild foods outside so like which most times the i guess the politics or the people providing providing the money don't don't want to hear about free food they they just want to see what you can make out of that spot Mm -hmm. but how i break it down to people because when people come to the fish pond they ask like oh how you think this was this place was before the fish pond wall I tell them, well, I don't know, because nobody wrote that down. It wasn't there 800 years ago. But we know what a a healthy, functioning fish pond is like. And you need that, we call it that vaimomona. You got that sweet waters where that magic happens, where the bloom happens. Mm -hmm. So in a certain place of the pond here, Mm -hmm. is about this pond is about 39 acres. So if there was no wall, I believe on the top corner where the fresh water is coming out and the salt water meat would be that that Vaimomona area because it's nice and calm and the wind's always blowing up that way. So they're like kind of slow water down up there. Um, within that one acre, we're just trying numbers to make it easier. Like naturally, it'll attract about 10,000 pua, 10,000 um, filter feeders yeah, within that one acre. It's a really low count, but just using the numbers. Um, so this is before Kanaka contact. This is as natural as can get. Mm-hmm. And that space was attracting and feeding about 10,000 naturally. 
then whatever our kupuna did to calculate, they, they formed this wall to now build two bigger blooms that would fit about 39 acres. So grew that one acre into 39 acre Whoa. natural bloom, mixing the right brackish water together. And now with that brackish water, that is the food that is building naturally that now attract more mm. baby fish. So slowly by slowly through time, now you can feed about a million wow. baby pua in this one pond. So when you get a million, a million is not just going to stay in the pond. Like maybe 500,000 gets out, 500,000 stays in. And we work on the overflow of that. But when that 500,000 gets out, it'll slowly feed the omnivores, carnivores, work its way out to the ocean, to the Pelagic. So now these blooms are happening even outside. Yeah. And then it's just, it's just a, the fish pond system. We still talk about like the limo systems outside and all the other, you know, um, systems that Akupuna made within the Akupua system. But, so we stop there. We come back to our time. Um, within the agencies, one of the main topics, when we get into one of the main topics about like, wild fish population outside mm -hmm. they talk about wild fish populations and they mention about the three negative effects that are affecting the decrease of those wild fish populations what is those three most popular negative effects to you you think uh pollution <laughs> i don't know pollution yeah yes. pollution is definitely one that affects wild fish population yes two more no, uh, I'm not an aquaculture person. I wouldn't know. But... But everybody with the kind, like pretty, pretty obvious stuff. Like how would, how else would fish start decreasing? Who would so, affect it? Uh, other predators that eat the fish. Predators, yeah, yes. predators like us too. Yes. Overfishing. Yes. Overfishing, and then the last one is worldwide, global. Uh, the urban jungle that impedes upon the areas. <laughs> the yeah, the urban that, that that would be within that the, the people version. So, um, the last one, um, climate change. Yeah. Oh, climate change. So, okay. Yeah. So you get those three, and then all the different sections within those three that you know kind of yeah. it kind of bundles up into them. So they're talking about these wild fish populations and the three negative effects. Most popular ones that are affecting those decreases. Mm. One thing I ask is. Um, that is missing from the puzzle, I believe it's like, what kept, or what year did you start testing those wild, like, what year did you start this data survey, and how big was their population, and then how do you know, how much did it decrease to us now? But nobody really has a pinpoint that, oh, year 1900, we started watching this oh, fish yeah. population, and now it's like this. Nobody has that. But so the only thing we do have is a lot of that stories come from our mo'olelo, like our people's mo'olelo. My tutu, for example, like I remember her talking about remembering seeing balls of fish when she was a kid, like shadows of fish, and, and they would always do hukilau. Mm. Yeah, so if we do, and they, they, they would do regularly hukilau, and you go around to all the different islands, the same kupunas around their era would say the same thing. Yeah, there's always balls of fish around our shorelines or certain places. Um, and then hukilau was regular. We do hukilau regular now. That would be considered overfishing. Yeah. So it's part of the decrease. So what in that time was keeping those shadow balls populated that they could do 
Bukilaos consistently, regularly, and still feed the community. Uh, one piece of that puzzle is nobody's connecting the downfall of fish ponds to it. So at one point, the survey was done for the whole state of the Outer Islands, um, and they surveyed about 488 fish ponds within Outer Islands. So 488 oh, fish ponds is around. How many? Yeah, 488. Oh, wow. Okay. So 488. And we're taking this low number, you know, like, and for me, I, I believe it's the low number because if I take the Kauai um, map, survey map, I know of fish ponds today that is not on that map. So that's cool. We'll take the 488 as a low number. I think it might be over a thousand uh, within all the islands. Um, so we get, we're talking about a million pua. So we're looking at fish ponds now more as a fish pond and not, not as a fish pond, but more as incubators. You get the right brackish water. You have these natural blooms that will attract more baby fish. So I mean for the pool. So if each incubator is holding about a million fish and there's about 488 incubators releasing 500,000, then you can see the slow amplification happening throughout the wild fish population. But nobody's talking about within a hundred years, two hundred years, a hundred, four hundred eighty-eight incubators disappears off of our right. basic, our systems. And my tutu story, another oral data collection take out is that she also said she remembers her tutu guys. So her great grandparents saying that they're fish balls, the fish shadows was bigger before. So they're already within two generations seeing mm -hmm. decrease happening. And now we see yeah. the balls aren't as big either as when my tutu guys saw. Yeah. So that's data collection there. So that downfall within that past 200 years and the downfall of fish ponds mm -hmm. within that 200 years kind of matches up for me. Because mm. then, And then I started looking like, oh, I wonder if this population, this wild fish population you're looking at now is actually the affected natural bloom of wild fish populations. And because our fish ponds aren't all functioning, so they're back to closer to the natural number, but it's a natural affected number because waterways aren't running the way it was before contact. Yeah, so like waters are being diverted, waters, there's a lot of, there's not a, a lot of brackish water systems that is flowing naturally anymore. So our fish ponds are one of our only hopes of bringing those waters back and helping amplify those systems that can show the importance of water reaching from Mauka to Makai. And rebuilding so what you're those sharing systems. is like this sort of sustainability in terms of a solution. This could be a very sustainable solution to help feed us. Doing is fixing the machine that our kupuna laid out before us 800 years ago. And just connected. We gave the Western system a chance within the past hundred years, they messed it up. We can't just keep sitting here and watching it and letting it happen because the more we sit here yeah. and let it happen, our kupuna are dying off. And then we will be a kupuna. And when we die off, our, our kiki, if they are not connected, we totally lose it. And then this rock in the middle of the ocean will dry up. Or the main thing, the water source will get messed up. And then nobody's going to be able to survive on this rock. After all these years, we've been surviving on this rock in the middle, the most secluded, you know, 
rock in the ocean. Like we had systems set up to survive and to just pass on. And we got to start amplifying back on those systems again. Mm. From Malka to Makai, not just the wetlands, but the drylands too. Yeah. Our kupuna was growing food in lava rocks or on side of mountains that didn't have water, but they had ways to capture clouds and mm-hmm. save mist and these misty waters to still water the plants that needed to feed the people. Yeah. Well, thank you, Paleke. That's a wealth of mana'o that you've shared with us today. <laughs> I didn't realize I was going to learn so much about the fish pond. I'm sure I've got so much more than I need to learn. And But thank you for sharing that because now I'm, I'm a little bit more um, what mindful of what I need to pay attention to when I go tomorrow, make sure I follow the protocol and uh, respect everything and respect what um, the Kapuna uncle and auntie is going to sh- teach me. Thank you so much. I've, I've already taken like an hour and 25 of your time. I mean, yes, I mean, almost an hour of your time. So thank you for your generosity and your sharing. Um, is there anything else you would like to end this with? Or, or, or Pao? Mao, everybody, keep going. Holy Pao. Still keep pushing. Mahalo nui to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, capturing this. Yeah, I'm um, going to stop the recording. We want to thank our guests for their generosity and mana'o. We also want to thank all our ag producers throughout the islands, and especially those we have heard on the podcast for discussing ways they address the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual dimensions of Hawaii ag production. Each story, each voice contributes to a broader understanding of what it takes to survive and thrive as we feed our communities. Wherever you may find yourself within our island agriculture economies, if you would like to share your story in our podcast, please contact us. Thank you for listening to the Seeds of Wellbeing, Voices from the Field podcast featuring their perspectives of ag producers throughout the Hawaii Islands. If you have found it helpful, please follow, like, and share this episode with others. And if you have any ideas about how we can make it better, please let us know in the comments or use the link on our website. Mahalo for tuning in. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Seeds of Wellbeing series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the University of Hawaii, College of Tropical Agriculture, and Human Resources, and any affiliated organization involved in this project.